Good afternoon, everybody. This is Brandon Busteed, and I'm delighted to have you for our latest Bold Leaders in Learning episode. I'm really excited to talk with our guest today, Major General Bill Mullen, who's in charge of the U.S. Marine Corps Training and Education Command. And we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff that obviously relates to the United States Marine Corps and the military. But I think, as you'll see, it's going to have a lot of application to those of us in higher education. Uh, and in corporate education as well. So first of all, General, I know you've asked me to call you Bill. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor that request and let our listeners know that you have requested that. But um, I, I, you know, I want to thank you for your incredible service you. to, the, to the country. And just start a little bit. Tell us a little bit about you uh, and your background in your military career. Okay, thanks. Um, had a scholarship from the Marine Corps um, to go to attend Marquette University through the Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps. Um, graduated in 86, uh, became an infantry officer in the Marine Corps, and have served for 34 years on active duty. Um, you know, in the infantry, uh, it's a, it involves a lot of physical activity, a lot of um, hard work. And when you're younger as an officer, you realize the physical challenges, you have to be able to keep up, you have to be able to stay in the lead, uh, stay out in front and set the example. But over the course of my career as a senior are becoming far more difficult. Um, and I always try to stay ahead of being mentally prepared, trying to read, try to be able to uh, make good decisions. And I noticed that my, all my peers didn't feel the same way about it. Um, so I started pushing more and more to have them get better educated, better read. Um, we have an entire system set up where uh, we do professional military education. Uh, we go, go back as officers periodically during our career. Um, if you go to every school that you've been assigned to uh, that you're supposed to go to over time, you spend at least three academic years in school um, uh, over the course of your career. Some people spend more than that, some less, um, but it's that important. Um, and some people only do it during those times. And one of the things that I've always tried to emphasize is like, look, what happens between those events is just as important. Uh, it's the, the personal professional development piece, and it's tremendously important. Um, and I've even given to, as you you saw the video clip that I did, the, the PME, which stands for Professional Military Education, the PME on PME with a subtitle, the importance of professional, personal professional development, all in the effort to encourage people to get after these things. Um, because one of the things that uh, a good friend of mine, Dr. Williamson Murray, has said, uh, he's an eminent, eminent military historian, you know, our profession is one of the most intellectually and physically demanding professions on the face of the earth. As you and I were talking about earlier, a lot of people think about the physical challenges of that, uh, but they don't necessarily think about the intellectual challenges. And if you're making poor decisions as a leader, um, Sometimes you pay for it, but many times your people pay for it more. Yeah, one of the one of the things that uh, that I really enjoyed as an anecdote that you shared with me when we chatted earlier, Bill, was uh, was how much you read. And I know that you know this has been a, a big uh, personal you know kind of uh, philosophy that you've embraced. But uh, but I know you've you've encouraged uh, all the different folks that you've led to to invest in that time as well. You kind of made the point, you know, there's formal training that goes on constantly in the military, but the individual still has to kind of take ownership of that and think about the learning opportunities they have in the nooks and crannies of when they're, you know, on duty and, uh, and in formal training. 
But uh, tell me a little bit about I, I, I forget. I think you said you read about 100 books a year. It might have been more. But I was also uh, you shared the anecdote of I, I asked you the question. I said, when are you finding all this time to read? <laughs> and uh, and you mentioned that, you know, you've got audio books while you're swimming in the in the pool. And just tell us a little bit more about how you do that. I mean, I think that's a remarkable investment that any leader should make. But uh, tell us more about about, you know, why you make time for reading and uh, and how you do it. Yeah, um, Secretary Mattis, uh, James Mattis, um, really good man, somebody widely admired in the Marine Corps. And he had this saying, he referred to it as the 5,000 year old mind. If you have the ability to take advantage of all the knowledge and the experience and the mistakes people have made, and you can learn from that over the course of the last 5,000 years, which is about how long we've been writing about ourselves um, involved in, you know, whatever. Um, if you have the ability to learn from all that, why wouldn't you do that? Um, and again, in our line of work, it's better to learn from other people's mistakes than make them yourselves. And so that's always motivated me because I've, I've kind of had that attitude for a long time. Um, and I finish on average four books a week. Um, so the number, yeah, it's, it's probably close to 200 a year now. Um, but the reason I do that, though, is because I am so concerned that I'm going to run into because things change so fast in this world. Technology, um, conditions, uh, the reason why people do things. Um, every time you make an adjustment, the person that you're uh, that is opposed to you makes another adjustment. So it's action, reaction, counteraction. Uh, I'm always concerned I'm not going to be equal to a situation that I face. And I feel that every time I finish a book, it pushes off that time just a little bit longer. And it doesn't give you the answers, but it helps you come up with the answers much, much faster. Um, I equate it to the, the tools chest of a master mechanic. Um, he's got every, he or she has everything they need in that tool chest. Um, all the specialized tools, all they have to do is reach over and grab it for the conditions that they're faced with. Um, and that's kind of the way, you know, I think about it. Every time I finish a book, I just put another tool in the tool chest. Yeah, I love the example of 5,000 year old mind. That's an inspiring way to think about it. And uh, and obviously you've, you've just made it part of your habits, right? I mean, it's uh, it's as natural for you to include Absolutely. time for reading books as it is uh, exercise and making time for meals. And, uh, I, you know, I'm encouraged to know that, that a general can make time for four books a week. And certainly, uh, you know, if that, if that behavior were the behavior of a lot of our leaders in corporate America, et cetera, uh, I certainly think that that would be a, a, a goal for people to strive for. So, you know, when we think about uh, this, this just real quick, there's a major general scales. He's written a number of different books, but he also wrote an article um, that said too busy to learn or too busy to read. Um, and essentially what he was talking about is professions, all the people that say they're too busy to read. And it's like, you're too busy not to read. You know, so you're going to make all the mistakes on your own. You're going to learn from your own mistakes and keep running into that brick wall. Seriously. So that's just another way of looking at it for the people that say they don't have enough time. That's right. Yeah, they're not they're not making time. They're not prioritizing it. And uh, obviously in an, in an era where you can get everything in uh, in Twitter size sound bites uh, and 500 word blogs, uh, you know, certainly people reading a lot through through those smaller bits and pieces. But. The, the book length reading is something that I think we all need to invest more time in. So thank you for, for providing that example. And one of the things that, you know, they're the, one of the, the most commonly used phrases in higher education uh, is, is, the, is the phrase lifelong learning. In fact, going back to my days when I was at Gallup, we did a, an analysis of 
college and university mission statements bill and and try to identify in a word cloud the most commonly used words and it turns out lifelong learning was the most commonly used set of words in college mission statements the reason why i bring this up is that we all love the idea of producing lifelong learners or being lifelong learners but the reality is it's not that easy and universities haven't necessarily followed through on lifelong learning for students. I mean, great uh, that they, they might teach them how to have some of those capabilities while they're enrolled, but then they get a degree and they go on and that's essentially the end of their education. And you and I were joking, you know, they do a good job of following up asking alumni for money, <laughs> but to what degree can higher ed institutions start to provide some of that lifelong learning to alumni? I think of it through the lens of corporate training and education as well, which I, I want to, you know, talk about separately. But how do you think about lifelong learning in the U.S. Marine Corps right now? Tell me about what that what that looks like as a as as a Marine. Yeah, it's um, to me, it starts with a mindset. And uh, you, there's a book called by Carol Dweck called Mindset. And so this is one of the things I try to emphasize with Marines. It's like, OK, you know, there's people out there with a fixed mindset, which they think, OK, I'll never be any better than I am right now. I've learned all I need to know. I'm on a plateau. Things are good. You know, I'm comfortable. I'm complacent. Um, and then you get rudely surprised when you realize you're not as smart as you need to be. And that plateau is not a good place to be, uh, as opposed to, to the growth mindset, which means I'll never be smart enough. You're, you don't, your ego doesn't get in the way of you learning from other folks, even if they're younger than you or they look different from you or whatever else. Um, you can learn from everybody. Um, and it's that I'm always trying to get better. I'm always keeping after it. And if you have that mindset, that proper mindset, that's, that's the start. Then it comes down to, you know, the Germans uh, have a term called Bildung, and I, I use it in the PME on PME. It's that burning desire to know. I want to know more. And, you know, Charlie Brown, the eminent philosopher on the Peanuts cartoon, uh, his saying was, the more I know, the more I know, how much more there is to know. And it's like, it's just exponentially you realize it's like, hey, there's just so much more out there that I could dig into and learn. And so how do you inspire that in people? And because pushing them, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, um, even in the military. Um, and so how do you inspire people to get after Because if they take it on as a personal mission, will just get out of the way because they're, they're just going to get after it. Then you just keep feeding them stuff and kind of help them, you know, hey, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Um, as opposed to, hey, look, turn off the television. Um, stop blogging in the, in, in the echo chamber that you're in, you know, or whatever, you know, playing video games or whatever it is and focus on the fact that if you're not getting smarter, you're falling behind. Yeah. And there's, to, to your point, there's a, there's a couple different aspects of this. You know, one is, the organizational intentionality, I'll call it, of making, you know, whether we call it learning, training, education, development, there's a lot of headlines we could put it under. But, you know, are you part of an organization that has made an intentional commitment to that, right, where where you are helping lead the horse to water? But then to your point, there's, there's the other side of this, which is the individual motivation, the individual you know, desire to do that. And that's the, that's the piece that, you know, you can hopefully inspire. That's the piece that you can engage by way of making it easier for people to engage in these types of things. Uh, but, but that's the tricky part. And that's the part that, 
you know, even you, you know, suggested is is uh, is not always a guarantee in the military. You can require people to do a lot of stuff, but that personal motivation is still key. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your your moments where you've had, you know, breakthroughs in inspiring others around their their appetite for learning, because I think these are the same insights that a college professor is always yearning for. Right. A, a K-12 teacher. Uh, and certainly somebody uh, at a managerial level or in a learning development role in a company. It, I think part of it is, is um, you know, there's another book called The New Education by Kathy Davidson. And one of the things she talks about is a lot of universities seem to spend more time focused on the reputation of the professors and how many people get shut out of their application process. You know, the, the low rates of acceptance they have for the college as if that's something to brag about. Um, as opposed to places like community colleges and some universities that really heavily focus on, well, what can our students do? When they graduate from our institution, what are they able to do? Are they set up for lifelong learning? Do they have that appetite to get after those things? Do you, do you maintain contact with them? And, and so one of the things after reading that book, I came here to this command two years ago, and this command was very focused on the process of pushing through large numbers of people through the system. And the thing that I asked was like, well, what about the product? What about our Marines? What do they understand and retain when they take with them when they graduate from our schools and move on? Um, do they have the skills they need? Uh, and if they, they need more later on, are we, are we able to provide that? Where they're at, can we push things out to them instead of always bringing them back to the brick and mortar institution saying, okay, come back to the masters here, we'll give you what you need. You know, So we're trying to shift all of that and we've had a lot of luck doing that. Um, one of the things that we put out was uh, Marine Corps Doctrine Publication uh, which is one of our most important publications. We don't have many of them, um, but uh, we numbered it number seven, and it's called Learning, and it's the why. Why is learning so important? Because one of the things I found is if you take the time to talk to our young folks, first of all, it's a bit shocking to them because they're not used to it. They're used to the electronic isolation of the phone and texting and the rest of the stuff, but if you take the time to talk to them, it's like a light bulb or a flower opens up. I mean, they're just, it, it has a great impact on them. Um, they love the fact that you're paying attention to them. Um, and if you can inspire them instead of pushing them, if you can kind of lay some things out, especially in the Marine Corps, you lay out a couple challenges for them from the, and they just take off like a shot. And if they understand why it's important, like I said, get out of the way. Um, they're going to be fantastic. Um, so I think if we spent more time, especially those of us a little bit longer in the tooth, um, you know, spending time talking to them, which means listening, which for many people is hard to do, um, actually listening to what they had to say, um, I think we, we'd be a lot better off. And so would the folks coming up behind us. Yeah. So you're talking about a lot of revolutionary stuff here. You're talking about leaders listening. Uh, you're talking about leaders making time for reading. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing a little bit that like, but you know, these are really critical things that I think uh, especially now are more important than ever for us to think about. And, you know, you would, you, you, I think the, the simple observer of the military would probably sit here and say, well, wait a minute. You know, I thought the military was about people following orders. Just do what you're told. You know, don't don't think outside the box. Right. Don't try. And, you know, but but the, the nature, you know, tell us about that. Right. Like I've, I've read enough about world military history and other things uh, to, to kind of understand that, you know, the ways in which military uh, operates are very different now than it is in the past. And. And in fact, you know, encouraging thinking, right? Encouraging uh, the ability to to adapt to situations that you've 
never actually seen before is becoming pretty critical, right? And again, this is going to sound familiar to anybody working in a company. You know, you can't you can't prepare for everything, uh, but you can sure try. And it's you know, so 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 tell me about that. You know, how has the nature of warfare or the nature of the military in general changed in a way where you know you're really talking about people uh, being able to make decisions, right? You know, dare I say, having some autonomy in, in how they operate. Now, obviously, there there's there's still a great need for structure for uh, for command, right? But uh, just g- give us a flavor of that a little bit, if you could. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, part of the challenge we operate, or, or we, we that um, hurts people's understanding of the military is, for some of them, the only thing they understand about the military is what they may see on television or in the movies, which there's been, there's been very, very few instances that actually get it correct, um, how things really are in the military. In particular, um, when we went to the all-volunteer forces in uh, 73, when President Nixon decided we're go- moving away from um, the, the draft and going to an all-volunteer force, well, that fundamentally changed everything. Uh, because before, with the, with conscripts, you know, they were low-paid. Um, you know, you still see this around the world with conscript armies. You know, um, they aren't paid to think. They're just paid to do what they're told because we're usually only in for about two years. So what you can actually do with them training-wise is limited. We took a hell of a lot more casualties. I mean, there's a reason why we didn't take as many casualties in the Gulf War and in Iraq and Afghanistan as we did in Vietnam and other places, even though there was a good bit of combat. Um, and it's because the approach we've taken. Uh, and one of the philosophies that we have in the Marine Corps, we call it maneuver warfare, the Army calls it mission command. It's essentially building that trust between senior and subordinate. So if the senior has to give intent, here's in general what we need to do, be able to accomplish, and the subordinate figure out, figures out how to do that and the important piece is when conditions change, as they always do, they make the decision on their own. Well, I know what the intent is. Here's what I said we were going to do, but that doesn't work anymore. I'm going to go do this. And instead of the senior going, whoa, wait a second, you didn't check with me first, which is what most people think about, the senior moves immediately to support the subordinate because they understand they're, they're accomplishing my intent. Yep. And that's enormous. Now, it requires a great deal of trust, and it doesn't always function well. Um, because some people don't have that trust. Um, but I, I've seen it work in some units, and when it does, there's very little communication on the radios, especially if people are trying to jam them, which is a problem. Um, and nobody can keep up with that because I don't know if you've heard of uh, an Air Force uh, colonel, retired colonel, he died a number of years ago, named John Boyd. He talked about the OODA loop. And the OODA loop is observe, orient, decide, and act. And if you can move through that cycle faster than your opponent, by the time your opponent makes a decision, that decision is irrelevant, and you've already moved on to something else, and they're way behind; they'll never catch up. And that's why you got to be able to move faster and decide faster. Yeah, and I mean, you've just—if—if—if if, if that doesn't, you know, stake the case for why you know this is an intellectual business as much as it is a, you know, as a physical business, then I don't know what does. And you know, I, I go back to thinking about you know lessons here from the military that apply uh, in other organizations or that or that, you know, the military literally could be a best practice for this. You know, I I don't think there's an organization that invests more in training and education than the military in general. Right. You know, if you were to compare that, you know, we were we were talking earlier about uh, how uh, it, it's, it's estimated that it costs about ten point nine million dollars to train an F-22 pilot. Uh, something like $5.6 million to train an F-16 pilot. You know, these are precious 
uh, human resources talent that you know when when they're trained well, obviously they're uh, incredibly effective at what they do. And one can make an argument worth worth every penny of the training that that you know was was you know the, the training investment spent on them. You know how do you how do we get to a place if, if you were giving advice to a a company right um, or even to a university? Uh, but I think you know a company is probably the best example here. What would you say about the you know how to how to make a case for the return on investment in education and how would you think about structuring it right because you could say, hey, we're going to take time out of the workday, which might be part of it, right? You know, you take somebody away from their otherwise tasks and duties to do it. Uh, or, you know, you're providing those opportunities for the individuals who want to keep excelling to do it on their own, right? So I'm just curious, what what advice would you give to corporate America right now around learning and development and making a stronger case for the return on investment for that? Yeah, most people focus heavily on training, uh, to and less so on education. They figure, okay, you graduate from college, education stuff is done. One of the things we talk about, the saying we have is, training prepares you for what you know you're going to have to do in combat. Education prepares you for the unknown. What happens when conditions change, as they always do? You have to be able to adjust. You have to be able to take intelligent initiative. So that's what this is about, is building that ability, because I imagine it's the same in the business world or anywhere else. How do you enable your folks to take intelligent initiative? Well, first, they have to want to. So how do you motivate them to do that? But one of the, the ways you do that is give them a sense of loyalty to the company, because that's what we focus on, loyalty to the Marine Corps, loyalty to the country. Um, so we have that motivation that's already there. But how do you inspire that in a company? And one of the things we're talking about now and we're trying to build is, is learner profiles for each Marine. And in that learner profile is, okay, here's the training you went through, entry-level training, the training for your job in the Marine Corps, um, and then other courses and things you've taken through micro-video learning, okay, you get a credential for that. Um, a computer-based training course, all right, you get a certificate for that. Um, and you build towards milestones that maybe in, in the uh, corporate world, it's it's they make more money, they, they get increases in, in salary, uh, but in other places, you know, how do you reward them to be able to continue? Some are going to want to do it on their own just to get better, but how do you, you know, how do you incentivize them to keep getting better, to, to invest their own personal time and do these things? And some of it may be, yeah, you, you give them time during the workday to do some of these things because they'll be a better employee. Yeah, and as much as, as I think you can carve out that time and should carve out that time, uh, you know, it still comes down to that that personal motivation. And I think one of the things that I've seen happen is where, where you do see people investing in their own education, right, and getting ahead, it starts to create a culture, right? It creates a motivation for others to kind of, you know, say, well, hey, you know, uh, you know, so and so went back and got their master's degree, or you know, whatever the example might be. Um, and I also think it's interesting too because we know, you know, the military has long been outside of this, like a lot of corporate education you know, we assume that it has to be somebody getting a degree, right? It's a, it's an associate's degree, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, right? There are all sorts of really valuable, both training and educational opportunities that are far short of a degree. And I think that's the other thing we have to wrap our heads around is that there's a lot of valuable learning that can be done, reading books, right? Short-term programs that might really change the way you think about the world uh, that, you know, aren't necessarily degrees. So, uh, you know, curious how, uh, you know, how you've how you've helped Marines who have gone through this process with the Corps. What about transitioning into 
uh, into civilian life, right? How how has how has what you've done helped encourage that? Yeah, that well, one of the things we talk about is we want to give people back to the society they came from um, better than when they came into the Marine Corps in the first place. So how do you do that? How do you make them better prepared? Um, some of that's encouraging through tuition assistance for them to take college courses to build on their degrees and encouraging to get them to understand, look, when you, you get out after four years or 20 years or whatever, if all you have is a high school diploma, you got a problem. So you've got to be have more education. You've got to have more skills. You've got to be more marketable when you get out. Um, there are some jobs in the Marine Corps where they're very marketable when they get out because it's a very highly technical skill. Um, but in the infantry, that's not the case. Um, so how do you get them you know, focused on things that are going to make them marketable when they get out? And that boils down to education. And they, But again, it's, they've got to have the personal desire to do so. Um, and then you know, maintaining contact with them, you know, writing letters of recommendation for them. You know, those are the kind of things that kind of help them move along because then they can come back and ask advice. I hear from folks that have gotten out a long time ago. I frequently hear from them just to try and keep that connection. Yeah, I mean, what's making them uh, a better Marine is is helping to prepare them for the transition they may be making into civilian life at some point. And, uh, you know, I think that that's the other thing to think about here is even if you're uh, your company uh, or, you know, whatever the example might be is investing in, in your training and education. Part of their goal is to help you be better at the job you're doing there or get a better job or a different job within that organization. But the other part of the personal side of this is that, yeah, not only can you get promoted, you know, get a raise, right? Uh, you know, and, but the more the more you're preparing yourself, the more you have an opportunity to get you know jobs and roles in, in other organizations as well. So there's a little bit of the self-interest rightly understood there. <laughs> yeah, to me, it seems like it, it seems fairly obvious that you'd want to invest in your, your human capital, which is your people. They're the most important things. You, that's the most important part of your business, I would assume, because it certainly is for the Marine Corps. Our most precious assets are our Marines. Uh, we spend a lot of time and effort in trying to make sure they have what they need. We're taking care of them. As a matter of fact, fairly early in my career, my wife would watch the stuff I would do for my Marines. And she's like, you, you never see that in the civilian world, the stuff you do for them. You know? And it's like, well, that's it's part of the loyalty piece going back and forth. I'm taking care of them the best of my ability. And then when we get in a fight, they're they're doing what we need to do. I mean, they trust that I have their best interests in mind. And But, but employees that are happy, healthy, motivated. They know we care about them. Um, you know, you're, you're making investments in them. Um, it would seem to me that that'd be obvious that everybody should be doing that. But from what I understand, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And there's a ton of data that supports it for companies that have invested in education benefits programs and training for their employees, right? The evidence is very clear. The retention rates are much higher. Uh, there's pr productivity improvements, right? I mean, so this this data is really clear, and yet most organizations have still not, you know, kind of run to that. And, I, and I'm encouraged because this is happening more and more. I'm also encouraged by uh, this IBM report that I cite frequently that came out about a year ago, where from 2014 to 2019, the average number of days that HR leaders report having to train uh, or upskill or reskill employees has gone from three days to 34 days in just five years, right? So here's the simple here's the simple point. 
we don't have a choice, right? Whether somebody wants to be a lifelong learner or not, <laughs> obviously we want to make sure they're motivated to be a lifelong learner as best we can. We don't have a choice, right? This is the world that we're all in, whether we're talking about the U.S. Marine Corps, corporate world. Uh, and I think universities in particular are going to have to think about how they remain relevant as lifelong learning institutions, not to train people to be lifelong learners in a period of four years, but to actually be providing some of that lifelong learning training. So I, General, I, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to be on the show today. Uh, I know you're, uh, you're set to retire here in the next uh, month or two. So thank you for your incredible service to the country. And, uh, and I hope others start to seek you out for your advice, because I think you've got uh, an incredible perspective here. And, uh, and I think other organizations could benefit from, uh, from what you've done for the Marine Corps from a training and education perspective. So thank you very much, sir. Thanks a lot, Brandon. I really appreciate the time today. And it's obviously, I feel pretty strongly about this stuff, so I have no problem talking about it. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thank you so much. And thanks to everybody for joining us today.